You're listening to All The Best. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. For the next few weeks, we're taking a break. And so we'll be playing you some of our favourite stories from the All The Best archives. We'll be back with new stories in July. In our first story, a kid with a big mouth goes on to eat a whole lot of avocados. It's 1997. Against all odds, you survived your mother accidentally taking an indigestion medication that should have left you at best deaf and at worst dead. And now you're finally reaping the rewards of your stronger than average immune system. Suddenly, all around you is bright and you're being cradled into the smoothest sheets you'll touch for the next seven years. He's got a big mouth, this one, a nurse says, and she laughs. Your mother cries, you cry. It's 2009. You read a novel by Ben Sherwood called The Man Who Ate the 747. It's about a man who ate a 747 and won a Guinness World Record for it. There was also some love subplot involved somewhere, but you don't care about that as much because no one cares about love or subplots when they're 12. When you watch the Guinness World Records TV show, you see a man gyrating with no less than 109 hula hoops around his body. Then you see a dog with a glass of water on its head walk 20 steps back and forth. Then you see a woman eat 19 avocados in one minute. So you think, if a man can eat in an entire plane, then you can eat 20 avocados in 60 seconds. So you train. The first week, you eat an avocado at breakfast, and one at lunch, and one at dinner. Sometimes two, if you're feeling peckish. The next week, you double that amount. Soon enough, you're guzzling overripe avocados with all the fervour of the man who ate the 747, except you have no love subplots weighing you down. Everyone always said you had a big mouth, your mum says. You want to ask who? But your mouth is too full of avocado to respond. Suddenly, all around you is bright. You're being hustled on stage by Grant Denyer. A minute later, you're surrounded by 20 avocado seeds. The crowd goes wild. How do you feel? Grant Denyer asks. Your mother cries. You laugh, through teeth stained green. It's 2017. The restaurant has those red and white check tablecloths you see in old Italian movies and unlit candles in cups of plastic. You stare at the doorway for too long, in case you miss the person whose face you've only seen once pixelated on your screen. You still swipe right, though. When they finally arrive, you're relieved to find that they actually resemble their photo. It only takes four minutes this time before they say, Hey, aren't you the guy who ate 20 avocados once? You sigh. At least they're being direct. Sometimes people skirt around it for an entire date, let you pick up the bill and then ask. That night, you sit on a dark couch in a dark apartment, illuminated by the glow of your aimless swiping. As you wait for midnight to tick over, you call your mum. You haven't spoken to her in two weeks. The line purrs for a while, long enough that you think she's asleep. 
she finally answers. In the background, you think you can hear sheets rustling, the echo of a man's voice. Is everything okay? She asks. The sound of lips smacking against skin. More rustling. Yeah, you answer, and trail off with a hurried promise to talk later. In the distance, your mother laughs. You cry. That story was performed by Michael Sun and was originally published in Subbed In. The supervising producer was Alison Chan with sound design by Mia Hull. In our next story, Ryan stumbles across an unwelcome housemate in his share house. And a heads up, this story is pretty gory. I think the first thing that I noticed from time to time was footsteps in the ceiling. This is Josh. We had a pretty good idea that there was something kicking around in the house. I remember seeing something moving and the beginning was like, okay, there's something in the kitchen, but I I couldn't see what was it. It was just like a little shadow. And then like days after, I saw the proper rat. And that's Louisa. We were living in a six-person share house. Pretty soon we all started seeing the rat. It would creep into the kitchen at night looking for food. And as soon as he saw one of us, he'd run and hide. We found his exits. One is near the dishwasher underneath the sink. There was a little spot just wide enough for him to come in and out. And he had like one specific place that he would come in and out from the cupboards. The rat started to expand his domain. Jackie saw him hopping up the stairs to her bedroom. And I remember just being like, oh shit, it's just having a run of the whole house. It was just getting more and more ballsy and less and less scared of people being in the space. And yeah, I just remember thinking, wow, okay, so it's like almost like another flatmate now. I remember one day he ate like half of an avocado. So Louisa covered the fruit bowl with a tea towel. And the next day he ate the tea towel and the avocado. I was kind of like, okay, that's too much eating our avocado. The rat had to go, but we were determined not to kill it. I have a feeling I was, like, all for rat bait, but then maybe people thought that was very unethical of me because apparently they die a really horrific death. But I know it's very effective. So when Jackie suggests rat bait, we're pretty firmly against it because half the house, including me, are vegan. Our plan is to catch him and release him back into the wild. So Kat goes out and buys a couple of non-lethal traps. Basically, it's a tunnel that goes up into a ramp at one end. Hungry Rat smells food, goes into the tunnel, up the ramp, the trap tips forward, closing the door behind him. But um, this rat was far too clever for that trap. It was all over it and they didn't want to borrow it. That one fails. So Louisa and Josh put together trap number two. 
Louisa and I set up the oldest trick in the book. We used a stick and a box with food under it and a string and stood at the other side of the kitchen. And it's that classic, goes in, grabs the snack, pull the stick, box lands on top. Very kind of Elmer Fudd. Oh man, directly inspired by some of those classic cartoons. Every object is a possible booby trap. We even did a paper trail. We did a little, little bits of snack leading towards the box and then just had to sit and wait. I remember the rat coming out from behind the dishwasher and would eat snack bit number one and then have a sniff around snack bit number two and then maybe as far as snack bit number three. And then my my recollection is that the rat would look at this box, give it a bit of a sniff. I wonder, could this be one of them there booby traps? And, and look me square in the eyes and give me a, really, buddy, <laughs> look? And he would just walk back in to, to whence he'd came. Ain't no boob and I won't be trapped. Mm. He was... Absolutely sharp as a tack. Trap number three, the spinning bucket. I set this one up. Basically, you have a ramp for the rat to walk up to the rim of a bucket. And across the opening, you affix a roller of some kind. I had a roller suspended with wire covered in peanut butter. So the idea is rat goes up ramp, reaches out for the peanut butter, roller spins out from under his feet, rat falls in bucket. I've never seen a rat eating peanut butter, though. He didn't go for that one either. This is what I was thinking. Because the house was mostly vegan, we didn't really try with cheese. We should have tried with cheese, no? At this point, we've been trying to catch this rat for almost six months, and nothing has worked. It managed to evade every trap. We've tried to fix it a nice way and it's not working. But I was reluctant to be the harbinger of doom. <laughs> we still don't want to kill this guy, but we feel like we don't have a choice. <laughs> the solution wasn't just like, OK, you win, like, do what you want. Enough was enough, yeah. <laughs> reluctantly, we switched to conventional rat traps. You know, those ones. Do you remember if the rat traps worked? Well, I know it mustn't have worked because I know how this story ends. Yeah. One night, I come downstairs to the kitchen. I turn on the lights and I see the rat sitting on the kitchen counter. He's looking right at me. I'm looking right at him. We're both waiting to see what the other will do. I look to his nearest exit underneath the dishwasher. He's closer than I am, but I think I can make it. I'm going to cut off his escape route. We both run to the dishwasher, and I beat him to it. He stops, turns around, and runs in the opposite direction, into the living room, under the couch. I've got him trapped. I know where he wants to go, so I put a bin next to the counter, leaving a tunnel. If he wants to get to his exit, he has to go through here. Then I take one of the rat traps, and I place it in that gap. That's really me. <laughs> Poor thing. I step onto the couch where he's hiding, very quietly, and I jump. And as soon as I hit the couch, he bolts for the kitchen. Oh yeah, you probably killed him with a heart attack first. He runs straight through that gap that I made for him, and I hear the trap snap. Oh gosh, 
But I can't see it anymore. Both the rat and the trap are gone. Seriously? How come? I go into the kitchen and I see the trap. It's been flung through the air. Then I see the rat on the kitchen floor. He's not in the trap and he's still alive. Oh my goodness. But the trap has crushed his legs. Oh my god. And he's just lying there taking these heaving deep breaths. You can hear the the soft swells of the of the string section coming in as this rat with its glazed over eyes lean to you and grab your lapel and pull you in and just say, "Tell my wife <laughs> there will be no crackling on the Christmas roast." It's clear that he isn't going to go quietly, so there's this obvious rush to basically put him out of his misery. I search for a weapon. I find a kitchen knife. I guess that's a common thing that people use to murder someone (laughs) or something. So I'm standing there holding this knife, looking at the rat, thinking about how I'm going to do this. Imagine if any one of us came in at that moment and it's just you with this knife and just lights on. <laughs> this madman holding a knife. So yeah, I decide the knife is going to be too messy. I put it back. The easiest thing to do is to just whack it on the head, right? So I grab an empty beer bottle from the recycling. Just one hit really hard, and it'll be done. He doesn't die. Oh, fuck. Oh, God. He goes into a seizure. Oh, Jesus Christ. So I hit him again and again. Oh, my goodness. And I, I just keep hitting him. Oh, my God. Did any blood come out? <laughs> You know you have those moments where you start comparing your ideals to your behaviour and the two don't really match up? This was one of those moments. I'd been a vegan for eight years at this point. I never swat mosquitoes. I'm the kind of person who will go out of his way to catch a poisonous spider and place it safely outside. Standing there with the bloody beer bottle in one hand, having just pancaked this innocent rodent, I'm faced with the realization that I'm somehow also the kind of person who will bash a rat's brains in. And the feeling that I have in this moment is one of pure euphoria. Six months of living with this rat, eating our food, chewing my bedroom carpet, cleaning up his shit. There's no remorse or sympathy. Just the dopamine hit of knowing that this six-month-long game of cat and mouse is over and I have won. It's a very uncomfortable thing to confront. To be so dedicated to preventing the suffering of animals and then to get such a kick out of killing one and to try to reconcile those two things. And then I just threw the poor guy in the bin. Jesus, you didn't even make a proper hole on the ground for him with a little cross. Would you have done that? Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) What makes it feel worse is that Louisa, who's not even a vegetarian, wouldn't have killed the rat at all. I thought we were all out of options, that the rat had to die and the rest was just a matter of logistics. 
but Louise was perfectly content to go on living with him in the house. And was it actually nice? At least I have something else to, to look at instead of just looking at my phone <laughs> while I was having dinner. Well, in the beginning, he was a little bit afraid every move I would, I would do, uh, he would go inside, back inside. After I don't know how much time, he started coming a little bit closer and closer. At some point, he was just walking like around my feet. Also because like I was having dinner and all the food scraps that I would have uh, left over from my dinner, I would give to him. For example, carrots, legumes and, and vegetables. From now on, we were friends. <laughs> Louisa was feeding the rat. Yeah, it would eat everything. The whole time we were trying to trap it. Her logic was that, well, if she fed it, it wouldn't eat our food. I yeah, know. I didn't quite get that logic. <laughs> Instead of killing it or anything, I started giving him food scraps <laughs> to avoid to eat the avocados. And how smart was it? I thought we were all trying to get rid of the rat. And all this time, Louisa was treating it like a pet. You make assumptions around like, oh, we all know what we need to do here, right? That you never even need to talk about it. And so when it comes out in such a blase, like, oh, yeah, no, we've been feeding it. It's like, you've been what? And maybe that's why the traps were not working. Because he was too full already. He couldn't be bothered to get into a trap, a dangerous situation for food. Walk up a ramp. Why would you do that? <laughs> If you can have your phone neck like close to your door. <laughs> but I didn't even realize that the rat would not come to the trap because of that. I'm just realizing now, to yeah, be honest. Yeah. If Louisa hadn't become friends with the rat, I would have never become its murderer. Oops, Ryan, yeah. sorry. <laughs> All that work for nothing. <laughs> That story was produced by Ryan Pemberton, with editing by Sarah Mashman and Eugenia Zubchenko. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Helena Bereni Peters. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pay you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our final story, Reese is home alone when he hears a familiar voice outside his window. And heads up, this one has some strong language. March 8, 2019. My parents got on a flight to Japan to see my sister. Nine hours later, my brother boarded a flight to America. It wasn't unusual for my parents to go overseas, especially to see my sister. But for Liam, it was his first time traveling by himself. He was anxious. I told him not to worry. I had been traveling multiple times before to countries that didn't even speak English, and I had been fine. I left out the part where flights and accommodation had mostly been handled by other people. He didn't need to know that part. It was surreal coming home to an empty house. I don't treat myself often, but you can bet that I help myself to a pizza dinner as I binge Netflix in my room. 
I was having such a good time that I didn't realize the sun had set. It wasn't unusual to hear noises outside my window at night. Dogs barking, drunks stumbling home, couples arguing in the park. I could hear it all through my window, though the headphones mostly blocked it out. Besides, a little drama could be entertaining every now and again. It was a little past 12 when I heard the noise. Um, please. Was that Liam's voice? At first I had assumed that I was mishearing the backing vocals of the song I was listening to as a familiar sound. In this case, my brother's voice. Actually, my first thought was of a certain monster from a recent horror film. You know, the one that bites out people's throats and then imitates their dying screams to lure in their friends. I took off my headphones and peered out the window, but through the fly screen in the darkness, I couldn't see anything past the hedges that marked the edge of the park. So I sat on my bed and tried to think of more rational explanations for the noises. See, I'd been listening to a lot of true crime podcasts in my last year of university, so naturally my brain recalls all the narrow escapes that victims make from their tormentors, all the sick games that killers would play with their victims' families. And Liam even made it to the airport? The last time I had seen him was before I left for work. There weren't any messages from him on the family chat saying that he'd made it either. Those could be faked if the killer had his phone anyway. I had no way to place him between 10am and his flight at 10 in the afternoon, and it would be another 15 hours before he touched down, if he was even on that flight. Okay, now I knew it wasn't my headphones. I could feel my heart pounding in my chest despite the sheer ridiculousness of the scenarios that I had come up with. Like obviously I knew none of this was real or plausible, but if it was I'd wasted enough time already. I grabbed my phone and head out of my room. On my way down the stairs, my brain filled in the gaps in the narrative. Killers often planned to catch the prey alone. It was just a matter of knowing Liam's schedule. What if Liam had escaped and was calling for help? What if the killer had followed him? I opened the door and stepped out into the darkness. If someone wanted to lure me out, it had worked. Wait, what was that? Are those guys getting into the car or out of it? Is anyone else in that car? It seems empty. Maybe I should take a picture of the number plate just in case. If only I could get a closer look at their faces. What the fuck am I doing out here? After some awkward standing about, I headed back inside. As I lay back in bed, a debate started in my mind. Was the implausibility of the scenarios I'd constructed reason enough to turn my back on what would be an unlikely, yet still very dire outcome? I decided to send him a text. Bro, message me when you get this. I knew he would respond. Eventually. I tried to sleep, but menacing thoughts continued to play out in my head. And eventually, into my dreams. The next day, I checked my messages. Sup, cunt? Last night at 12.30, I thought I heard someone outside my window saying, Mom, Reese. It was super spooky, I'll tell you the rest later. Oh, that was my ghost. Don't worry about it. I just left my soul behind so I wouldn't lose it. It turns out Liam had touched down in Texas and was eating a Japanese meal for breakfast. He sends me a picture of what he's eating. It looks good. 
Chicken on rice is a weird choice for your first meal in America, but at least he's eating breakfast. It's amazing how the brain can waste so much energy on nothing. Wait, hold on a second. Liam isn't actually in this picture. That story was produced by Reese Blinko and was originally performed at Read to Me. Sound design was by Ryan Pemberton. would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past, present and future. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarung lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Emma Pham are our social media producers, and our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosefova. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Helena Baroni-Peters. Thanks for listening.